I next met with Dr. Susan Bulbul, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. This was a 53-year-old woman who underwent a screening mammogram that revealed a small nodule and surrounding calcifications. As is standard treatment, she underwent additional imaging followed by an ultrasound, and it confirmed an irregular mass with calcifications. She underwent an ultrasound-guided biopsy because they could visualize the mass on ultrasound that revealed a well-differentiated invasive cancer. She opted to undergo a partial mastectomy and sentinel node biopsy. Her pathology was quite favorable in that it was a sub-centimeter cancer. It was a nine-millimeter, well-differentiated invasive cancer, but she did have positive margins. She had medial and superior margins that were positive. She also had one positive sentinel node out of two. Her biology was also favorable in that she was strongly ER and PR positive. Her two was negative and her KI-67 was quite low. Had a lengthy discussion with this woman about the recent consensus statement, which states that, and for years, we've all as breast surgeons and anyone doing breast surgery struggles with what do we do with close margins? Are they positive? Are they negative? Does it change outcome? So agree or disagree, I think that we were relieved to have a consensus statement out there. And really what this consensus statement told us and really put out there in the literature was that a negative margin by definition now is no tumor at ink. For a positive margin, tumor at ink, those patients should be re-excised. And this really deals with invasive cancer. So this consensus statement really dealt with invasive cancer. We will hopefully see another consensus statement in the near future regarding ductal carcinoma in situ. But this consensus statement was with invasive cancer. So it, for the first time, gave us a definition that we can really talk to patients about saying that a negative margin by definition is no tumor at ink. So based on the consensus statement and looking at this patient, she actually had positive margins, which made the discussion much easier in that I thought that she should return to the operating room to have a re-excision. Now, a consensus statement does not mean that you have to adhere to this for every patient every single time. If I have a patient, and what they found is that age really does not factor into this, but it's hard to remove bias, and we really should be going by data and not our own biases. But you look at this consensus statement, and as we know, there's six margins when we do a lumpectomy that we're concerned at. If I have a patient who has less than a millimeter clear margin on five out of six, I am more concerned about her because I am more concerned that there was a much larger bulky disease that I was aware of. So even though the consensus statement tells me no tumor at ink is now the definition, if I have a patient with five out of six very close margins, that's someone that I still will talk about taking back to the operating room to take out more tissue. So a consensus does not mean 100% of the time, every single time we have to adhere to it. 
What did you actually do with this patient, and what's her current situation? So this patient underwent a re-excision because she had two positive margins. The final pathology of that did not show any residual disease, which is not uncommon. Another interesting fact about this patient was that she had one positive sentinel node out of two at the time of her sentinel node biopsy. And we had a lengthy discussion about this and whether or not we should do an axillary node dissection. And several years ago, a study called Z11, which many of us are familiar with, came out. And Z11 was really a practice-changing study. And what this did was a randomized trial. And what it did was every woman in the study underwent a lumpectomy and also had a positive sentinel node, and that was one or two positive nodes. If she had three or more positive sentinel nodes, she was not included in the study. Those patients were then randomized to undergo an axillary node dissection or no further axillary surgery. And what it found, and these results are fascinating, what it found was that the group of women who underwent the axillary node dissection had about 27% of them had additional nodes that were positive. Since it was a randomized trial, we can then extrapolate and say, well, in the group that did not have axillary node surgery, any further axillary surgery, they also had the same degree of extra of nodes that were also positive. So we can say in the group that had axillary node surgery, 27% had additional positive axillary nodes, that the same went for the group that did not have additional surgery. Yet, at the end of 6.3 years, which was the follow-up for the study when it was published, there was no statistically significant difference in local recurrence, axillary recurrence, or metastatic disease, showing that in this group of patients, they're removing the rest of their axillary nodes, performing a completion axillary node dissection, did not affect their outcome. These patients all had a lumpectomy, so had radiation treatment to the breast. And the reality is what we can really gain from this study is that removing, if you have one or two positive nodes, positive sentinel nodes, removing additional nodes really did not alter outcome. The reality is that our systemic treatment And local therapy with radiation really takes care of any small metastatic disease that may be in the remaining lymph nodes. So this patient did not undergo an axillary node dissection. This woman was a surgeon. And again, when we talk about individualized care, we really have to delve into what's important to these patients. And this woman removing her axillary nodes with an increased risk of lymphedema would really make an enormous difference to her career. This patient was a surgeon? Yes. Interesting. Have you seen essentially widespread acceptance of the Z11 hypothesis, or do you see people arguing with it in either your tumor boards as you travel around? I think it's fascinating. I think that there was a lot of discussion about this early on. And I think that there still is discussion, but I think that the adoption of this is incredibly widespread. And as I go and do grand rounds and talk at different tumor boards, these cases really aren't even presented anymore because the widespread adoption of this 
is so large. What we need to remember is that this study was performed for women undergoing lumpectomies. And as we come up with one study, it creates a question for this next study immediately. And the question is, what do we do with women undergoing a mastectomy who may or may not be getting chest wall radiation or post-mastectomy radiation? And if they have one positive sentinel node, can we extrapolate from Z11 and say they don't need an axillary node dissection? And that really is what I see more at tumor boards, the discussion question, rather than they're having a lumpectomy, should we do a completion axillary node dissection? It really is, what do we do with the patients with a mastectomy? What do you do with those patients? Again, I think that we go back to individualized care. If a patient has two positive sentinel nodes prior to doing an axillary node dissection, I will have them speak to the radiation oncologist because we now have several studies telling us that the potential complication rate is lower with radiation than surgery. So I think it's a really important discussion to have with the radiation oncologist. So if they're having radiation, then I will not dissect their axilla. So just to sort of extend this out a little bit, what about the patient who's gotten neoadjuvant therapy? And we'll talk later about a patient of yours who got neoadjuvant therapy but who has a sentinel node, for example, that's positive after neoadjuvant therapy, you still avoid axillary dissection or no, not in that situation? I think it's a great question, and I think that's a controversial topic because, again, for Z11, the patient getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy or endocrine treatment was excluded from that. So if we take the study at face value and don't extrapolate, then that patient should have an axillary node dissection. I think that, again, if we have these informed discussions with the patient, we really have to have these risk-benefit discussions with the patient, and, and will it affect their outcome? And that's where we get into individualized care. If we have you know, an 80-year-old woman who really has comorbid diseases, do we believe that we're affecting their outcome by dissecting her axilla? She's already received neoadjuvant chemotherapy. She may or may not be getting radiation. Are we increasing her potential complication rate? And that's where we have to go back and look at risk-benefit. So I don't think that there's a yes or no answer to that question, and I don't believe that there's a right and wrong answer to that question. I think that's really where we need to look at the individual patient, see where they are health status-wise, age-wise, what's their expected lifespan, and how does it fit into their life? So one final question related to this case. You mentioned the issue of positive margins that show DCAS, non-invasive disease. How do you approach that question? I think that positive margins really are positive margins, and we have to respect positive margins, respect the literature showing that the local recurrence rate, even with radiation, if we have positive margins, is higher, and those patients go back to the operating room. I think the more difficult question with DCIS is what do we do with close margins? And do we accept the NSABP definition of no tumor at ink? Do we want a one millimeter margin? Do we want a two millimeter margin? And that really varies institution to institution and surgeon to surgeon. I have to say that based on the consensus statement for invasive cancer, that all of us are willing to accept 
close margins more and more. I think that it goes to, is it one close margin for DCIS or is it four very close margins? And it goes back to that individualized care. I'm willing to accept a close margin, a one millimeter margin for DCIS, but am I willing to accept less than a one millimeter margin of clearance on three margins? No, I'm, I'm frequently not willing to accept that. And it also depends on, are these patients getting adjuvant radiation or not? So maybe that leads into your 60-year-old lady with DCAS. Why don't we talk about her? Okay. Based on these cases, we can see how often screening mammography picks up cancers here. (laughs) So this is a 60-year-old woman who underwent a screening mammogram that revealed calcifications of the right breast. She underwent additional magnification views, and they revealed indeterminate calcifications in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast. A stereotactic biopsy was once again performed, which is the preferable way to diagnose a woman with these calcifications, and it revealed DCIS. Had a lengthy discussion with the patient, and she opted to undergo a partial mastectomy that revealed indeterminate grade DCIS, which was six millimeters in size. There are several important issues here in this case. Again, the importance of image-guided biopsies over open surgical biopsies. The majority of these biopsies do not reveal cancer, and therefore image-guided biopsies are really important. This case, though, brings up several issues. As we know, there's a huge debate about the overdiagnosis of DCIS, and DCIS typically is picked up on screening mammograms as indeterminate or suspicious calcifications. I find the term overdiagnosis and overtreatment very interesting. We do know, and, and I think all of us dealing with patients with DCIS, accept the fact that most of the times DCIS will not evolve into invasive cancer and will not alter this patient's lifespan or quality of life at all. The problem that we have today is we do not have markers telling us which patients with DCIS we can actually observe and which we should treat because that is a more aggressive case of DCIS and therefore could potentially become invasive cancer and potentially metastasize and affect her lifespan. So I do not personally use the term overtreatment because until I know that this patient's DCIS will not evolve to become anything worrisome, I don't know which ones to treat or not treat. So I do hope that in the future we have markers to really help us differentiate the patients that we do need to treat and the ones that we do not need to treat. But until then, I don't understand the term over-treatment of DCIS. Any comments on, we were talking before about genomic markers and invasive disease, about genomic markers and non-invasive disease. There is a you know variation of oncotype that's out there. Is that useful or something you include in your practice? I think that it is a useful test. The DCIS score by oncotype, I think, is different than that used for invasive cancer by the same company. 
the test for invasive cancer is actually predictive and prognostic for invasive cancer, meaning it tells us the chance of this patient having metastatic disease in 10 years, but it also tells us the benefit of chemotherapy. The DCIS score does not do that. The DCIS score really gives us the risk of recurrence for this individual patient. One of the nice things about it is it breaks down the risk of DCIS recurrence and then the risk of invasive recurrence. So it really gives us that nice piece of information and it helps the patient. What it doesn't do is it doesn't give us the benefit of radiation. So that is different. And it goes back to what risk the patient is willing to accept. So when we look at what's qualified as a low-risk group for the DCIS score, I can tell this particular patient that they have a 15% chance of recurrence. Now, radiation will decrease that, but are they willing to accept that 15% chance? That falls into a low-risk group, but 15% chance of recurrence is not low to each individual patient. Some women will say, yes, I'm willing to accept that. Some women will say, hang on, if I get radiation, I can decrease that. And we know radiation will decrease that risk. So 15% is something different to each individual patient. I do find that test helpful in that it allows us to have a more educated discussion with the individual patients. So does that mean you utilize it in your practice? I do. I cannot say that I get it on every patient, but I certainly do utilize the test. So can you talk about the exact type of radiation therapy this lady receives? I see it was accelerated whole breast. And where are we today with partial breast radiation, both in DCIS as well as invasive disease? I think that the partial breast radiation discussion is an interesting discussion, and I think that it will remain an interesting discussion for years and years to come. I think that partial breast radiation is here to stay, whether in the form of brachytherapy with interstitial catheters or a balloon catheter, or as we move more and more into the IORT world, or electronic radiation with the use of Zoft. So I think that partial breast radiation is here to stay, but again, it really has to be in a select group of patients. So going back to the individualized care for patients, I think that one of the most exciting things in the world of breast cancer that really over the last 20 plus years is that it is no longer one size fits all. And the more tools we have to offer patients, the more we can direct care to the individual patient. And I think that really is when we look at all the treatments out there and we talk about targeted therapy, it really goes back to that we can take better care of the individual patient based on their individual disease. So can you talk about a scenario where you'd be most likely to be thinking about PBI? Yeah. Say I have a 68-year-old woman with a sub-centimeter, well-differentiated, low-grade invasive cancer. I think that that's, with negative sentinel nodes, I think that's an ideal woman for partial breast radiation. Or a high-grade DCIS, I think that's an ideal place for PBI. I still 
am very hesitant to use PBI in a younger patient population. So I really am with the older patient population with the PBI.